Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to the power of co-elevation to accelerate your career. Today, we will explore how this new leadership style of co-elevation can raise the level of impact you have and advance your career. Our guest today is Keith Ferrazzi. Keith is the founder and chairman of Ferrazzi Greenlight, a research-based consulting and training company on the power of teams to transform companies. Earlier in his career, Keith was the chief marketing officer of Starwood Hotels and also the chief marketing officer of Deloitte. He is the author of bestsellers, Who's Got Your Back and Never Eat Alone, and most recently published Leading Without Authority on the very topic we'll discuss today. He has been published in the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, Inc., and Fast Company. He received his bachelor's from Yale and an MBA from Harvard. Welcome, Keith. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really curious myself to hear about this new leadership style and your concept of co-elevation. No, thanks a lot. I'm excited to share it. It's become more than just a principle of leadership for me. It's become a bit of a movement. For a profession, I coach executive teams. And the basic principle of my work is that leadership competencies are one thing, but team competencies are another. In other words, just because you've been taught to be a leader doesn't necessarily mean you've maximized the performance of your team, at Mm. least in modern day vernacular. And there's really a couple of components to that. One of them is we've all got to learn what does it mean to be a part of a team? It's not just the leader's responsibility. It's all of our responsibilities to improve the team competencies. And this idea of co-elevation, of going higher together, of being responsible for cracking the code, not just of your own solutions, but each other's. I really think that 20% of our mindset needs to be on each other's success, not just our own. Now, that sounds rather Pollyannish, but what I find is that in large organizations, the existence of silos, the staying in your swim lanes, it is eroding massive shareholder value, Mm -hmm. and it is stopping organizations from being transformational and meeting the pressures of the marketplace today. So tell us, at the basic level, what is co-elevation and as it relates to leadership and how does it really help one lead and have an impact? Yeah, well, let me just give you a, for instance, I'll give you a few examples of some mm-hmm. of the poison pills that I see in teams every day that I work with them. How many teams spend a reasonable amount of their time speaking behind each other's backs, not saying the kind of things that they would say in, to each other's faces as they would outside of a room? in the hallway on one-on-one dialogues. Unfortunately, it's a lot. In fact, 70% of teams claim that they cannot speak openly in in the room and challenge each other, 70% of teams. So we know that that exists. And there's no way that conflict avoidance can be an acceptable behavior if you're really trying to be transformative Mm -hmm. as an organization and as a team. And I'm not talking about disrespect. I'm just talking about speaking truth in a room. 
So what would it mean for a leader? I remember one time I had one of my clients, CEO of a very large organization, an airline, berating his team because we do this diagnostic tool and his team was a 2.2 on this issue of willingness to courage, to challenge and be, have courage in the room. And he was berating the team. He's like, I want you to be courageous. I want you to speak truth to each other. Why is it that you can't? And I just said, stop, we'll make up the name Joe. I said, Joe, that 2.2 score is your score, damn it. On a scale of zero to five, if your team doesn't feel it has the courage of being able to have open conversations with each other, that is your score. You got a month, change it. The next time we do this, you're going to have a month worth of practice. And he paused for a second. And yes, at the same time, I looked to the team and I said, and shame on all of you. You need to be able to, you're adults, you're professionals, you're running each of you are making multi-millions of dollars a year, including stock options that the shareholders have given you. How dare you be so puerile as to have these conversations only in the shadows of conversations? And so that happened to be a pretty rough and tumble group, and I could have that kind of a dialogue. But we got it to a 4.4. Mm. And I have to tell you, the shift was extraordinary. What was most interesting was the CFO came back to me and said, what I learned in there, I think, saved my marriage. I went home and started having conversations with my spouse that we've never had but needed to have. So when I say it's a movement, it's a movement. And that's just just one of eight dimensions of a high-performing team. But imagine if a team walked into the room and some element of every person believed that their job was to make each other successful. And if everybody walked into the room and everybody was open to getting the challenge and the candor and the pushback and the elevation from their peers... I mean, that's just one, I said, of eight elements mm. of a high-performing, co-elevating team. Hopefully, that sort of comes to roost to the difference that I'm talking about. I mean, just feedback and coaching. Where do we get our feedback and coaching? Are we sitting on teams where there are peers of ours who have hard and soft skill gaps that we see, but we don't think we have the permission or the social contract to say anything? Well, that needs to change too. So anyway, those are just some of the examples. So that sounds a little bit also about mindset, the mindset that you're right, we all play a role in making each other successful. It's not just I'm looking up for the leader manager to do it, but. Well, yes. One of the things that I have as a coach, I coach behavior transformation. So I go into a team, I work with it for six months to a year. I tend not to rely on anything other than practices in that I appreciate, there's a wonderful phrase, you don't think your way into a new way of acting. You act your way into a new way of thinking. So mm-hmm. if I want to change a mindset, I don't talk about it. I test it up front. I see what exists. And then we all discuss what exists. But then we go through a series of practices. So I'll give you, for instance, most organizations use report outs of some sort, which tend to be one sequential report out after another. Well, to varying degrees, everybody in the room is waiting for their turn or doing email or whatever. Well, what if after every report out, the team was told that we were going to go into small breakout rooms and we were going to discuss that report out and we're going to report back. And I say small, meaning literally rooms of two or three. We're going to report out back from the breakout rooms. Having listened to that report out, what challenges do we have for that person they may be missing? What innovations might they benefit from And what offers of support or help do we want to give them? Now, all of a sudden, you've turned what used to be a stagnant set of report outs into an engaged wrestling match on all of the ideas where the team 
is squeezing out and excreting all of its value to each other. It's a practice. Mm-hmm. I don't expect a conversation mm-hmm. about the need to be more forthright in a room to make a difference, but a practice could make a difference. I'll give you another practice. I call it Yoda in the room. That little fuzzy character called Yoda that's sitting behind me is the voice of all wisdom. And I think all teams have the wisdom of Yoda in them, but it doesn't come out. So in the middle of a meeting, I would stop the meeting and say, just curiosity, what's not being said here that should be said? What is not being said in this room that should be said? And you'll hear crickets. But if you stop and you go into breakout rooms of two and say, everyone is going to report back what they believe is not being said that should be said. Now it's an assignment. And in a small group of two, you have higher psychological safety and higher courage. You get the dialogue and then you report back and you actually get a report back of high degrees of courage and truth telling and challenge in the room. Again, simple practices can fundamentally redefine the nature of a team's social contract. And so it goes in your mind way beyond collaboration. It's a redefinition of how we work together. Exactly. In my new book, Leading Without Authority, I talk about collaboration and I say it's on a continuum. Most people coexist until they physically can't just coexist any longer. They can't get all the resources. Somebody else is standing in the way. Then they start to collaborate. Collaboration is a fallback position when you can't get it done yourself. That's different than living in a world where you want to truly co-create with people because you believe it's a better answer. When you start to embrace inclusion, embrace diversity, not just filling the seats with representative or diverse representative populations, I mean, when you actually sit in the room, you hear everyone's voice. That is so important. And a lot of companies don't embrace that. They don't really care. They just want to get it done. The shortest path to getting it done is the best path in people's minds, which we know it Mm -hmm. isn't. All the data has shown that a more diverse and broadly inclusive set of points of view give a better output, but yet we don't live in that kind of collaborative environment. We coexist. So you mentioned a couple of those behaviors, but for that team example you gave to go, they kind of doubled where they were. What behaviors then, what did they start doing and why weren't they really doing them before? You've been in so many teams as I have. Do you see conflict avoidance in many organizations? Yes. And I think where I think this gets for me, it's a complex thing. And I think you're coming at it very rightly from an elevation as well of all of our responsibility within a team. And I think in a hierarchy, we used to just think, I'll wait till somebody else addresses things. But I have a responsibility and I have a role, is what you're saying. We're all in it for each other's success. That's behavioral culture. That's about me as a talent. But you also mentioned we're still so functionally matrixed, organized in most large... Well, that's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book, Leading Without Authority, because I have seen transformations occur in organizations when anybody can take the lead. I've seen Mm -hmm. heads of HR be Mm -hmm. responsible for the transformation of an entire product Mm -hmm. because they started having the courage to call the meetings. It really means that anybody can start and... Right now, we lead within our matrix. We lead within our functional silos. We lead within what we have permission for. And then I see a lot of organizations where the mindset of victimization, well, the central IT function doesn't allow this to occur. Well, I'm sorry. If you're an automotive company 
And the only way you're ever going to approach beating Tesla is to recreate yourself as a software firm. Then damn it, there's no excuse to just say central IT won't let that happen. You need to call that question on the table. As a group, you need to suggest that there's a set of benchmarks to move in that direction that have to occur. And I don't care if it's your job. Your job, if you're a shareholder, and most executives are, then your job is to make sure that you maximize shareholder value. And the real maximization of shareholder value inevitably these days comes by working in the network, not by working in the org chart. You work across the the org chart, across the matrix. Let's dig into this because I completely agree with you. Anybody can start. It is brilliant when you do. But doesn't it still seem like if you're trying to do that within a structure that doesn't make it easy for you. We're still siloed. We're still rewarded to maybe stay within our lanes. Budget processes don't make it easy to collaborate across. Is it that that whole thing really needs to move to a more networked? Well, look, I mean, I know that there's a lot of innovative structures like Holacracy and others that are being created. I ignore Mm -hmm. them. I ignore them because that's too heavy lifting. It's very heavy lifting. <laughs> that's, that's too heavy lifting for me as an outside consultant and coach mm-hmm. to fight the org chart of the company. What I do is I embolden a leader within the company to be the tipping point, to be the change mm-hmm. agent. Mm-hmm. Chapter one of my book, Who's Your Team? First, I have to identify what kind of a transformation do you think is worthy of this organization? Step number two, figure out who your team is and then begin to enlist them incrementally until you have a quorum because you don't have the right to call the meeting for the reinvention of product if you're the head of HR, but you do have the right to go sit down with the head of product and see whether that person will call the meeting or maybe the head of marketing will call the meeting because they've got data that the head of product doesn't seem to be listening to Um, or the CTO could call the meeting. So you could lobby your first partner on this mission, on this quest. And what's powerful about What I try to teach in the book is the first person you invite into your team, you're inviting them into their team. This is a co-creation. This is not about authority. It's about leading. I almost want to redefine the role of a leader to be that of a Sherpa. Mm -hmm. It's about getting the group up the hill. It's not about being the leader of the hill. It's irrelevant. And so leadership these days, particularly in such a complex world we live in, is about Sherpa-ing change through to success. The chapter two is it's all on you, mm-hmm. meaning I don't care if the head of product doesn't get it yet. It's all on you. If you think it should be gotten, then begin to create the allyship, earn the permission. You were talking about Deloitte. I became the chief marketing officer of Deloitte when I was in my late 20s. That sounds ridiculous, but it was true because I took it upon myself to take the CEO's audacious vision of being someday at par with McKinsey and Anderson the time mm-hmm. it was Anderson, now mm-hmm. it's Accenture. But, and I went out and I was a kid. I was an intern from Harvard in between my first and second year. And I reached out to Bill Mattisoni, the chief marketing officer of McKinsey, Jim Murphy, the chief marketing officer of Anderson, which is now Accenture. And I said, hey, I'm a kid at Deloitte. I'm writing this white paper on professional services marketing. May I interview you? And I'll be happy to give it back to you as well as anybody else I interview. I finished interviewing the big eight at the time, in addition to a few others. I sent the paper to the CEO of Deloitte and I said, I heard you have a speech about wanting our brand to be 
at that time I was an intern, wanting our brand to be at par with these other companies, here's a roadmap as a possibility. Well, like, when did any partner do that? And maybe I had that wherewithal because I was just a kid. But the point was that anybody can be the tipping point of transformation. And that's what I'm trying to teach in Leading Without Authority. But that's what I try to teach even at the upper echelons of the largest companies in the world. I mean, we're coaching five of the top 20 companies in the world right now and coaching the executive team. Sometimes it's not even the leader. Sometimes it's one individual can be the tipping point of a team's transformation. Tell us also a little bit more. You say that it's really crucial to the future of work that we begin to lead differently and lead this way. And prospects were living the future. And as you look ahead, what will you see ahead that says this is even more important? I think we have all witnessed a degree of agility during the last months that we had not really seen in our organizations. I saw Home Depot stand up curbside delivery in two weeks, and they had been debating it for two years. We saw many organizations do extraordinary things. General Motors stand up an entire factory for ventilators. I mean, there's all of these things that we saw happen quickly. Well, I think that that's going to become the new norm. These organizations adopted a process out of crisis called Agile. It's a process that many of us are aware of, but they tend to be used in program and project management, mm-hmm. and in pro, et cetera. But to bring that up at the executive team level, to be working in agility, part of that is the recognition that the report outs or the scrum that occurs at the end of a sprint of work is a collective. And right now we are not working in collectives. We're working in silos. Mm-hmm. So the velocity of change is not going to change. I mean, by the time this airs, We may already be back in lock-in again. Who knows? Mm -hmm, This is what's going to be happening. Mm -hmm. There's going to be so many curveballs. And I think that what I love about it is we're getting used to dealing with curveballs. And so this is a new operating model for working in this incredibly networked, incredibly fast-paced, requiring of agile, and requiring of resiliency. I use the word not lightly. Mm -hmm. Resiliency is the ability to adapt quickly and activate, and then to move to a different plane from where you were in face of some form of challenge, et cetera. And I think all of this has come to roost in such a significant way. And it does require a new social contract from the old ones we've been working on. When I say it requires new, I mean, I have been preaching this for 10 years and writing on it for a long time. I just think the lucky thing is we now have some experience that it's possible. And there are a lot of companies that have said, wow, this was an amazing six months. How do we sustain some of these things going forward? I love your thoughts on this. First of all, I love this. It's such a great call to action. It is the way forward. We have to continue to lead without authority. To your point, it just helps everyone to rise. The thing I'm curious about as we're talking about it is, I've personally done a lot of this, Keith, and I will tell you, Yes, it helps you tremendously. It helps the team. It helps you be successful. It is, in the long run, brilliant. It is also hard to do. And you mentioned this resilience. Tips in how to do it and stay resilient in the fact that it's not always a natural act. There's a number of things I'd answer that with. One of them is that we need our posse. It gives us energy and it gives us sustaining power. Most change agents 
are floating around organizations bumping up against the tides of everything else. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to teach change agents how to be more focused on creating us. So you can do it yourself and bump up against and tilted windmills, or you can create a tribe of change agents in the company making it happen. And when I see those who are, because it's interesting, there's a certain personality type of those who want to be change agents. Many of them are loners. They're isolators. They want them, they're heroes. They want to do it themselves. The real change agents of the future are going to be community builders, mm. people who can fastly build the kind of tribe that can achieve this kind of change at momentum. When you try to do this yourself, you might get it done, but the alienation and then just the drain on you personally, it's a very exhausting way to work. And I think it causes heart disease and cancer probably too, but I think we need to begin to learn how to create a really supportive tribe of change agents. In your book, you also talked about the role of the manager and said they don't have time to coach. I'm curious your thoughts on that. I know that's in some ways true, and it doesn't negate the fact that we need to lead without authority, period. Even if managers were brilliant coaches, everyone could still lead in that way. But why are we allowing that? I wrote a piece in HBR a number of years ago, a couple of years ago, I think, where I described just the, the environmental circumstances that prevent managers from being great coaches. The reengineering of the 80s and 90s flattened organizations significantly, put more people underneath the managers, therefore stressing their informal learning and their coaching time to give. We've only added volumes of work on individuals as market pressures have increased. It's just a reality. Plus, because of the network of work, your employees are working on projects that you don't even see them working. They're working on lots of different things. And so are you really the best person to give the person all the coaching they need? I believe in peer-to-peer coaching. I believe Mm -hmm. that I'm working with HR leaders. I've been believing it in a long time. I wrote the book, Who's Got Your Back, to promote peer-to-peer coaching for ourselves so that we create a team that won't let us fail, that will tell us the truth, that sort of thing. Now I've been coaching to that in teams where teams become each other's coaches. One of the things I coach a team to do is a thing called an open 360, where the team goes around and gives each other feedback, both critical feedback and celebratory feedback. And it's very positive exercise. It's Uh, extremely positive. I've done it many times with sessions you've led, but also in other venues and in my own organizations. It's brilliant. I feel that we just have to give up the idea that all of our coaching comes vertically Mm -hmm. from the top. And it doesn't, doesn't have to. We turned Merrill Lynch, their financial advisory community, into peer-to-peer coaches focused on helping each other generate net new accounts. And for those who were in the peer-to-peer coaching groups, they lifted their net new accounts by 50%. We're doing this right now with Weight Watchers, which is ironic because I learned so much about peer-to-peer coaching from Weight Watchers when I wrote my book, Who's Got Your Back? Their physical weigh-in groups have always been a source of peer-to-peer accountability, peer-to-peer celebration. And now as they are, Weight Watchers is WW is transforming more into a physical and a virtual organization. We're bringing that same peer-to-peer coaching inside of the company with their own coaches. And 
in co-elevation, what I think one of the principles is that you have relationships where there's free-flowing feedback. Any tips for staying open to feedback and knowing how to give really good feedback, productive feedback to others? The one problem that people have to get over when they give feedback to peers is they've got to realize that they should not expect anybody to take it. If you're giving feedback to your employee, you're giving them a directive. Change in the following ways that I'd like you to change. They can choose to do it or not, but it has a deleterious effect to their success because your manager told you something. If you're giving feedback as a peer, it's given as a gift. You can only be given as a gift because nobody has to listen to you. So if you want to give feedback to somebody, what should be playing in your head is, you know, Mary, I really care about you. I care about your success. Your success is critical to us. Might I suggest? And leave it. I mean, so that's so important that you shift the mindset with which you used to give feedback if you were a leader where you were giving somebody a directive and now you're just, you care enough about them that you're telling them something that they could benefit from. Very different perspective. I want to ask you a couple of questions about you as well. You've made so many interesting pivots and to date, <laughs> you have a long road ahead. So many career pivots that, what have you learned through it all? What might you say, having done a bit of corporate, entrepreneurial, you've written, you speak, you've got so much richness in your background. What led you to some of those pivots and what would you take away from it? So many different ways to answer that. The one thing I can say is I have to acknowledge the fact that I am a variety junkie. And inevitably, the longer you stay with something, the more exceptional you can be at delivering extraordinary things to the world. So I just even look back at Never Eat Alone, my first book, which was the preeminent book on building networks in our lifetime. It was the second most important book in that subject matter to Dale Carnegie's How to Influence and Influence People. I regret not having stayed with that subject even longer and built an organization that would have supported that kind of ongoing support of executives who were really wanting to thrive and build those kind of ongoing networks. When I wrote it, I was like, okay, what's next? What's next? And then I went on to studying behavior change and how do you really get behavior to change and wrote who's got your back around the power of other people to changing your behavior. And then I decided that my company is a coaching organization for leadership and teams. And now I'm writing two books on this. And I just started a new book on the future of work and what's evolving in these five months that will fundamentally transform the future of work in the next five to 10 years. I've got a project with Harvard on that called Go Forward to Work. I spent two years and $2 million of research on virtual and remote teams. So I don't know, like the bottom line is I love looking at all these topics. You're very curious. I'm very curious. And I would say I'm a little regretful of not having, once I have spiked with an insight that really lands, Mm. I should have probably found partners to build businesses off of those that could Mm. have brought those ideas to greater scale and supportive people. But I'm getting that now. I mean, I am not moving on from this point of transforming teams. Mm -hmm. My mission today is to transform teams that will transform the world. And all of our intellectual property and our writing and our thinking is going to stay here for a while. And even if I go on to be curious about something else, I'm making sure that I have the sustainable leadership 
in this area of team transformation and the future of work. That's my commitment. That's awesome. Keith, is there one additional piece, some career advice, something that served you well throughout your career that you might share with us? This won't surprise you, but everything you dream of achieving, start putting names down on a piece of paper of those that you would like to co-create extraordinary things with and build your team. And it's not about who reports to you. It's your informal team. It's your support network. It's your alliance team. It's your partner network. It's your posse. Build your posse to be extraordinary and then make sure that you define with that group the kind of behaviors in leading without authority that define extraordinary peer-to-peer support, the candor, the truth-telling, the celebration, the vulnerability, the intimacy. So get your posse. And Mm -hmm. what a great time right now to do that. We can all reinvent ourselves for the next 10 years. I've recognized that my focus on coaching teams, I've now started to embrace deep, deep friends, like friends of mine who are like Eric, who built Zoom, rethinking like, how does technology reboot the efficacy of meetings? Not just Mm -hmm. how do we bring virtual meetings? How do we reboot the efficacy of meetings? I'm talking with Jeff Wilkie, who's leading Amazon right now. And he and I have really interesting dialogues around how technology will fundamentally re-enable segments of business like Amazon did, but in other segments. That's what a great opportunity to reboot yourself for the next five to 10 years but stop inching forward out of survival mode for the mm-hmm. next 18 months. Look ahead five years and then do something in the next 18 months built on a foundation of where you want to be in five years, not just getting out of the hole. Fantastic. Keith, thank you so much. I mean, there's so much to learn, as you say. We can all keep getting better and better at leading without authority. There's so much richness in your book. My big nugget, too, is the richness of the posse and co-creating more and more with others. So really thank you a ton. It's so clear how passionate you are as well about transforming teams and what an impact that will have. So thank you. We really, really appreciate it. Mary, thanks so much. And just follow me. I've started a website called Go Forward to Work, goforwardtowork.com. And the point is, let's not slip back into old work ways. Let's go forward to work. So we'll be posting a lot there and we'll be building a community of change agents there. Join us. Look forward to continuing the dialogue, Mary. And it's so nice to be back in touch with you and you're, I love the way you think. So let's make sure that we don't lose track of that in the coming weeks. We'll co-create. Thank you, Keith, very much. Indeed. Cheers. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at Modern Career Pod. We'll include the sources noted in the episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. 